following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Well, some of you know this. Um, that I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I, I became a Christian at the age of 30. So as a young adult, I had, I had several different kinds of jobs. I mean, I worked in sales. I worked in marketing. I worked in hotels. I was in radio for a little while. I had a different kinds of jobs. See, God had gifted me with a big mouth. Um, I mean, I always said, if, if big mouth was a spiritual gift, man, I'd be killing it right there. Um, usually what that means is I have to apologize to a lot of people for the things I've said. Um, but, but sales is a difficult gig. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of respect for all of you salespeople out there and some of the challenges and difficulties that you walk through. So let me ask this question this morning in a broad sense. How are you thankful for some of the hard things that you walk through? I mean, I know we're thankful for the things we like. We're thankful for the things we enjoy. We're thankful for the things that are good for us, for, that happens good to our families. We're thankful for those things. But how are you thankful even in the things that are painful? I mean, for some this morning, I mean, the, the difficulty and the struggle uh, with, with marital relationships and, and different relationships we have, there's fracture, there's challenge there. Some are walking through a season where you have lost a loved one. Or maybe it is your job, and maybe it's painful day after day, week after week, to walk into that place of business. So I worked for this audiovisual company for about 14 years. I started there when I was young, and, and I was a salesperson there, and, and I started at this uh, local audiovisual company as a non-Christian. So I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a follower of Christ, and uh, I worked in sales, and I did everything that I needed to do, everything that I could do to get the contract signed, to make a deal, to have those backdoor negotiations. I did all the things you're thinking and worse. And then seven years into that job, seven or eight years into that job, through the tenacious prayers of my wife and, and the merciful, merciful hand of God, I became a Christian. I trusted Jesus with my life. I clearly heard the message that Jesus has paid a debt for me that I owe and I could not pay. I clearly heard and understood and grasped the message that Jesus is the one who's paid for my sins, paid for my lies, paid for my rebellion, paid for it through his death on the cross and via his resurrection into glory. And I believed that message. I wanted that message. I needed the Lord. I needed Jesus. I turned from my sin and I embraced Christ by faith. And man, it was fantastic. No, actually, at the beginning, it really wasn't. It was really hard. See, things began to change at work. I mean, I no longer wanted to lie to customers. I no longer wanted to cheat them. I no longer wanted to go to certain places of entertainment with them. I no longer wanted to do some of the things I was doing and say some of the things I was saying because I knew that that um, offended a holy God whom I now say that I love. And that made circumstances and situations at work extremely difficult. God was changing my heart. He was changing my mind. He was changing my desires, everything about me. And that made circumstances difficult, painful, even some hostile circumstances at workplace. I mean, I will tell you something you already know, that the world's not going to love you more because you love Jesus. And, and I mean, I can choose from a myriad of examples. Let me just select one that we had these meetings. Monday morning, we'd have our sales meeting, right? So every Monday morning, we'd meet in my boss's office, the whole crew, and, and we'd give a soliloquy, we'd give a speech on what we were doing with sales and, and marketing at that time. And what he would do is he would lock his door precisely at 8 a.m. So if you were there at 8 o'clock in 15 seconds, you would have to wait outside to be invited back into the office to be berated in front of the staff. 
And we would stand or sit around his desk, and one by one, we'd go around and deliver our speech about what we were doing. And and, and never failed. Like every time it got to me, he would barrage me with questions. He would challenge and spotlight and highlight all of my failures. He would embarrass me in front of the staff. I mean, he would threaten my job. It was humiliating. And most people don't like Mondays. I hated them. I dreaded them. And my wife, Nuri, she remembers, man, I would get up in the morning and stand in the front of the mirror in the bathroom, and I would plead with God to give me an excuse so that I didn't have to go to the office that day. I mean, you guys know what that's like. I mean, I was praying for car accidents. I mean, that's, I mean that, that was the hard thing I was walking through, and we all walk through hard seasons. What's the hard thing you're walking through? Because it's in that space. It's in that very plot of real estate that God says you can rejoice, you can pray, and you can give thanks right there. Now, some of you are walking through something, you've been through some things that are far, far, far more painful than a a work situation or a work environment. How can we give thanks there? Like, how can we rejoice in that? There's a question arises. I mean, we're, we're four days away from Thanksgiving now. How are you going to be able to give thanks? How can we be thankful even in the painful? How do we do that? The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he writes this letter to them. And this, now, we've been talking about Paul for several weeks now, so let me just give you some context and some background just to refresh your memories. Paul, the, the greatest Christian missionary to ever grace this planet, I mean, he goes from town to town, right, and city to city delivering the message of the gospel delivering the message of Jesus, that Jesus, the very son of God who who lived for you, who died for your sins on the cross, who stood in your place, has now ascended to heaven and will be coming back for his church. He delivers that message to every city over and over. And only one of two things happened. It was either revival or rebellion. They either threw a party or they threw stones at him. That was the result of Paul's visits. So he goes to Thessalonica, sets up the church there. This may have been one of the first cities that he evangelized. And then he left. And what he did was he sent back to them his uh, protege, if you will, his son in the faith, his understudy, Timothy. Sends Timothy back to the church to check on how this young church is doing. Timothy comes back and reports to Paul. Hey, man, these guys, they're, they're full of questions, and they've got some challenges too. So Paul goes ahead and what amounts to writes two letters to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonians 1 and 2. And in those letters, he's instructing and he's encouraging. In the first letter that we're going to be in in just a moment, he, he writes to, um, to explain the gospel to them uh, further, to, to, um, to expose them more to that, to help them understand the, the gospel that they held on to, that they believed. He reiterates the gospel to them. He also writes to instruct them in their faith. He also writes to help them apply the spiritual truths that they've learned and that he's taught them. And something very important that we can't miss about this letter, and we're not going to see it because we're not going to be in, in the whole letter, but, but every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul points them to Jesus. Like every chapter, he calls to their remembrance in spite of their circumstances, in spite of their challenges, with the many questions they have, he calls to their remembrance that their focus must be on Christ. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 this morning. And uh, as you're turning it, you can find it on your device or find it in your Bible. We'll have the verses on screen for you. But keep that in mind as we look to chapter 5 and see what Paul has said. Three verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. Paul writes this to the church. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks 
in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Paul writes three short verses, three big points. Paul writes these, 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 these spiritual truths, these challenges to help someone focus on, on what, they, what, what the priority is to where their focus needs to be in order to live a life that displays these marks of a Christian that Paul just said. And the first one that he outlines for us is rejoice always. So let's just be straight with each other for a moment. Um, rejoice always. Like, like this Christian talk, right? That's church language. That's, those are churchy words. Um, but yeah, And I know that you know what they are because they're either stuck on your fridge somewhere, you've got them crocheted on a pillow, or you've seen them on a bumper sticker. Rejoice always. But if you think about that, I mean, isn't that a little absurd? I mean, with all of the situations going on in your life, with all of the things happening in and around you, isn't that a little crazy? Rejoice always. Mind you, the people outside of the church, non-Christians, not in the church, maybe some here today that, I mean, you're new, you're visiting, and maybe, you know, you, you just don't know about this Jesus yet. Man, you're like, yeah, man, with all the negativity and hard things, you guys are talking about rejoicing and joy. I mean, I don't get you people. I mean, it happens even here at church, doesn't it? We just kind of throw that out there. I mean, normally on most Sundays, you know that I'm in the lobby, and I'm, I'm around the growth tracks table, and I'm meeting people, and I'm connecting people with, uh, with all the community groups, that's right, that was a shameless plug for community groups. They start up in January. Um, so I'm out there meeting people, right? And I'm, and I'm asking the question, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? How, how's everything? And invariably, I'll get the answer. Man, things are so awesome. They are fantastic. We are blessed and highly favored. Things are just phenomenal. His car is on fire in the parking lot, but everything is just fantastic and phenomenal. I mean, do, do we really even understand? Rejoice always? Do we even see what Paul is doing is Paul is beginning to build up in his readers, in his audience, the attitude that they can choose. So he writes, rejoice always. Very literally, rejoice, the, the, the verb that to, to, to be joyful, to be glad. And of course, always the, the adverb that says at all times. So it's joy at all times, joy in all circumstances. Now, is that even, is that even really a thing? Like, can we have that? You're going to see that Paul says yes, because you choose it. And that makes sense. I mean, we, we choose our attitude every moment of the day, don't we? We choose to be, to be happy. We choose to be sad. We choose to be confrontational. We choose to be angry. We choose to grumble and complain. We choose those things, don't we? I mean, last month, just about a month or so ago, my son Ian was driving home from college, and he blew out his tire on 595. So, of course, it has to happen late at night. So, me and I jump in the car. We head over there, and the spare gets put on the tire, and it's super late. So, we're like, all right, let's just go home, and we'll take care of it in the morning. So, the next day, we get up, and I go to the car. I see the spare. The spare's flat. I'm like, all right, it's my day off. Let's just handle it. So, we take the spare off the car, go get air, put it back on the tire, go take the busted up tire, get a new tire, come back home, get the tire out of the car. The new tire's flat. I'm like, fine. Let's go back. I get to, the, get to the, where we bought the tire. Go to the guy. Say, listen, man, here's your tire. It's not working. He says, oh, let me check the tire. So he looks at it, and he says, no, sir, it's not your tire. It's the rim. The rim's cracked. I'm like, no, it's not. It's the tire. He says, no, it, the rim is cracked. I'm like, are you kidding me? So Nuri's standing there, and she's watching my angst rise. She sees my blood pressure going up. Just bought the tire, 150 bucks. Now I got to go get the rim. I'm like, all right, Munyeka, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the dealership because I know a guy that knows a guy that knows a guy there. Famous last words. We get in the car, and we head up to the dealership, and the whole way I'm complaining. I'm, I mean, I'm finding stuff to complain about. 
complain about the traffic, my AC is not blowing cold enough, whatever it is. So we get there, and I go barreling into the dealership, and of course, the guy I'm looking for is not there, so I got to go to the parts counter. That was a joy. I get to the parts counter, and I say to the guy, hey, look, I'm looking for so-and-so, he's not here, I need this, this, and this, and how much? And Nuria is standing there, and she's trying to placate the situation. She's watching my agitation level rise. I'm starting to be a little sharp, a little short with the guy behind the counter. He's smiling. I'm not. And she begins to see that. She's laughing some things off. The more I found to complain about, the more I complained. And that wasn't leading anywhere good. I mean, that only led to frustration. That led to anger. That led to confrontation. It led to combativeness. It led to just mean-spirited stuff. It just wasn't going in a good place. You see, when you choose anything other than joy, when you choose some of those other things, there's always going to be fallout, isn't there? I mean, in relationships and marriage, there's going to be friction and, and frustration. At work, there's going to be difficult conversations and awkward moments. At home or with family and friends, there's going to be hurt and wounds. And Paul says, you can choose joy because of your focus. You can choose joy because of your focus. You can always choose joy. So what if I had chosen differently? What if I had chosen better? The reason we can say you can always choose joy is because it's focused on something, on, a, on not your circumstance, but on a greater conviction. Your joy is rooted in a conviction that's greater than your circumstance. See, what Paul is beginning to do is Paul is pointing these people to Jesus. That's your focus. That conviction that he's at work is the greater circumstance that you should be focused on. Now, some of you here are like, okay, great. I hear you. I, I see he's pointing people to Paul, but so what? I'm still in the middle of this. Well, the reason why that's so important is because it is this Jesus that's at work in that scenario and in you. I mean, this, this deep-rooted joy that finds its focus in Jesus, that, that helps us deal it helps me handle. It helps me walk through all of everything, all of those difficult circumstances. Joy that's rooted in Jesus overcomes and puts every hardship in its proper perspective. Joy that's rooted in Jesus puts every hardship, every pain, every difficulty in its proper perspective. And here's why we can say that. Because joy that's rooted in this place, this kind of joy that gets you through the hardship, that is on the other side of that difficulty, that is undergirding and underneath all of that mess, that kind of joy finds its anchor, finds its basis in the person, in the work, and in the promises of Jesus. And here's what that means. That joy is on the basis of an attitude on the attitude that, that, that whatever's happening, whatever's going on around you, God is at work in it, and God is at work in you. Joy is based on the attitude that God is at work in that circumstance, that God is at work in you. I mean, that's the kind of joy that we're talking about, that, that everything that's happening in your life and around your life and in you and around you is that God is at work in that place, and your focus needs to be shifted to what he's doing and, and what he's handling in those moments in you. This is the kind of joy that's in heaven. This is the kind of joy that's on the heart of God. C.S. Lewis paints the picture beautifully when he writes, man, joy is the serious business of heaven. Now look at verse 17, because this is the second challenge that Paul gives us. Verse 17 says clearly, pray without ceasing. So if, if rejoicing is an attitude, then the second challenge of prayer is an awareness. I mean, it is, it is a constant, consistent awareness, pray without ceasing, an awareness that God is there and God is at work. 
But let me just give you a silly little example of something specific that God taught me about prayer. So we're a soccer family, right? So I grew up playing soccer. My son is a very skilled goalkeeper, good soccer player. But there was one year, um, I emphasize one year, that we tried something different. He wanted to try baseball. So, um, you know, we would practice in the yard, and we'd practice at home. We'd go to the field sometimes. I mean, he was really good with his hands. He could catch, and he could throw really, really well. That wasn't the problem. The issue was hitting. Like, like he couldn't hit. He couldn't hit any. He could never time the bat well enough to actually hit the ball. I mean, I would take a softball, a larger ball, and I would toss it to him, and he couldn't hit it. But, I mean, I was, he was excited, wanted to do something different, so we wanted to encourage him. Registration rolled around. He was excited about his new uniform, his new glove, his new cleats. And then, of course, the practices and the game started. And, um, you know, the rule is, I guess, every kid, every child gets two or three opportunities per game to bat, right? The hard part was that Ian struck out two or three times every game as we went through the season. He couldn't hit. I mean, people on base, he would either strike out or hit it right to the pitcher every time. Like, so every Saturday that season, I was praying. I prayed hard every Saturday. Saturday, Lord, just, just one hit, not for me, for the kid, just one hit. Every, I mean, I started on Friday night praying for Saturday for him to get one hit. And I remember it was getting close to the end of the season, and um, we had bases loaded, and we were down by one run, and Ian comes up to bat. I was like, oh. So um, I wanted him to get hit by the ball just to get on base. I mean, is, is that bad? Just on the leg or something, you know. I, bad parenting. I guess. Well, I, anyway, look, it was the, towards the end of the season He's like 0 for 85 now, and, and, and we're at the last game, like last game, last Saturday of the season, and Ian comes up to bat, and you know, look, we encouraged him like we always did. All right, Ian, come on, buddy, dig in, keep your eye on the ball. <laughs> just one hit, just, just one hit. So I, I put my head down. I saw the pitcher getting set up, and I saw Ian get set up to bat now because he swung at every first pitch all the time. I said, oh, boy. So I put my head down, and then, and then I heard it. I heard the crack of the bat. I looked up, and the ball shot through the infield. Man, I jumped out of my seat. I leaped onto the fence. Ian spun around and turned to me. Everybody spun around and turned and looked at me. And I said, Ian, run to first base. So my 8-year-old is now jumping up and down on first base. And honestly, look, I don't remember what happened after that. Um, I don't particularly care what happened after that. I was keenly aware that God answered my prayer. I was keenly aware in that moment that God heard me and he answered my prayer. Some of you hear that this morning. You're like, yeah, I get it. I, I pray. I get it. I prayed on Tuesday. I pray, you know, and stuff happens, and I, I got problems. I got issues, and I pray. Okay, that's great, but I think Paul had a profoundly more significant meaning behind pray without ceasing, to be in constant and consistent awareness and dependence on God. It's this daily living with, with daily moments that are aware that, that God is there and God is at work. So, so if joy is rooted in the conviction that God is at work, prayer is rooted in the conviction that God is there. So in your life, when, 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 when you come across difficult things and distracting things and discouraging things and depression or, or difficult circumstances, man, you, you hold that up to God in confidence, knowing that he's there, knowing that he's at work. When you celebrate something and you're rejoicing, you go to God with that and you hold that up to him in confidence, knowing that he's at work in that space. When you see evil or violence or, or sin in the world, man, you, you go to God with that, you turn that over to God in confidence, knowing that he can and he will do something about it. We all walk through 
these hard things. We all, we all, we all walk through these difficult things. And, 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 and we go to God and we turn them over to him and show him, Father, this is, this, is, this is the difficulty. This is the struggle that we're in. To pray without ceasing. Luther put it this way. Martin Luther said, you know, when, when, when things get hard, when, the less I pray, he said, the harder it gets. The more I pray, the better it goes. See, what happens is your life now becomes a continual going to God. Isn't that prayer? Man, and this is, this is a biblical statement, man. That, this, is, this is a scriptural mindset because the, the scriptures call us to pray. The scriptures encourage us and call us to storm the throne room of heaven with our prayers. Come and pray. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, man, uh, go with confidence. Come boldly before the throne of grace that you might receive grace and mercy in a time of need. Come confidently. Come boldly and pray and bring that to the Lord. It's that kind of prayer. You know, on these three encouragements on these three challenges that we see Paul uh, sharing with the church. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, wrote this about the unity of these three, about the harmony found in rejoicing and in praying and next in thanking. In these three things, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Man, when, when prayer, when joy and prayer get married, firstborn child is gratitude. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. And that's verse 18. Check it out. Verse 18, Paul writes, gratitude, give thanks in all circumstances. So if, if rejoicing is an attitude and prayer is an awareness, giving thanks then is an action. So this is not, not just a word we use, not just a day we pull out of the calendar in November to celebrate. I mean, this giving of thanks, this thanksgiving should mark the life of every Christian. It should mark the life of every believer that, that this thankfulness should be a result of a thankful heart. Our actions should be thankful. Our words should be thankful. Um, our lives should exude this thankfulness because we are choosing to be grateful. That should be a, a, a mark, a hallmark of a Christian's life, to be thankful. So let, let's play this game again. Let me ask you this question. What are often the things we're thankful for? I mean, typically, you and I are thankful for what? We're thankful for the things we like. We're thankful for the things we enjoy. We're thankful for the things that are good for our family. We're thankful for the things that, that bring us pleasure. We're thankful for those kinds of things. No one is thankful for the pain. No one is thankful for the ugly side of humanity. No one is thankful for, uh, for the, the, the painful things like hurricanes and cancer. Nor should you be. Nor should we be. Let's take a closer look at what Paul said because he didn't write give thanks for all circumstances, did he? What does the text say? Give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, that's a vastly different kind of statement. Give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, but in all th circumstances. Thankfulness can mark your life because it's not based on what's happening around you. It's not based on your situation or circumstances. It's dependent on your focus. Like joy, choosing to rejoice, choosing joy is dependent on your focus, giving thanks. Being thankful is not uh, relative to your current situation, but, but focused on uh, where you give focus. It's dependent on your focus. And Paul, the apostle, I mean, he starts off this letter. Paul, the New Testament poster boy for suffering, starts this letter by, by writing, hey, hey, you know that we suffered and we were beaten and mistreated um, in Philippi for sharing the message of Jesus. He starts the letter that way, for sharing the gospel. They suffered. 
He writes another letter back to the church at Philippi. And he says, brothers, you know these things that happened to me. He writes the letter to Philippi from a filthy prison cell. In chains, in a filthy prison, he writes about rejoicing and giving thanks and in prayer. I mean, I, I don't know. If I was in that position, I certainly wouldn't be writing about being thankful. I'd be like, God, get me out of here. But no, 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 not Paul. Paul writes that he's thankful. Paul can do that because he's focused on a God who's at work in him and in his circumstances for a greater outcome, producing a greater outcome in those circumstances. That was Paul's focus. And we know this because we're not making it up. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, Brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me so, so uh, all the floggings and the beatings and being shipwrecked and being bitten by snakes and left for dead, and now specifically my incarceration, it has happened to me to serve the purpose of advancing the gospel. You see, Paul can say that because he's looking at his situation. He's looking at his circumstances through the lens of God is at work in him. God is at work in those circumstances, pushing forward the message of the gospel, advancing God's purpose in the world. That was Paul's focus. See, God is at work in you. God is at work in the moments of your life, pushing forward his agenda, using your situation, your circumstances, and he's at work in you. And when we begin to look at life, our lives, the, the victories and the blunders, the, the successes and the defeats, when we begin to look at our life through that lens, through the lens, the prism that, that God is at work in me, He's at work in this situation for for a greater purpose, for a more significant purpose, pushing forward his agenda, then you can give thanks in all circumstances. Then you can give thanks in all circumstances. And notice the second thing also. So we saw thanks in all circumstances, but the second thing that I mentioned just a moment ago is the interconnectedness of these three terms. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. There's a harmony there. One sparks the other. I mean, you, uh, re- choosing to rejoice leads to a prayerful uh, awareness, a consistent awareness that God is there, which results in a thankful heart. It's that kind of joy, that kind of prayer, that kind of thankfulness. We see that connection in these three. See, the challenge here comes. The challenge with these particular verses comes when life gets hard. The challenge comes when the pain comes. But then you realize something. So this job that, um, that I mentioned earlier and the boss I worked for for 14 years, I mean, I was never thankful while I was there. I was never thankful to him or towards him that I can recall. But I learned a lot when I was there. God taught me a lot about myself, about my faith, what he was doing in me, um, things not to do. I learned all of those kinds of things. So fast forward eight or nine years, and uh, just after I started here on staff at West Pines, my wife and I were in the office, and I get a call from an old friend, and he says, hey, listen, our boss died yesterday, our old boss, he died yesterday, and we wept for him. My wife and I went to the memorial service that weekend or, or whenever it was, we went to the memorial service, and it was there that struck me. It was there that I realized, man, those were hard days. I mean, those were, those were some painful days. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go back to those for nothing. But I'm thankful for them. Because God taught me so much. I was, he was so at work in my life in those moments. I was keenly aware that God was at work while I was struggling. I was keenly aware that I can be thankful in those painful moments because God's at work in my struggle. 
you can choose to be thankful. We can be thankful in that which is painful because a good God is at work. And listen, God isn't good because he answers you. God is good because he gives you himself. He doesn't give you answers. He gives you himself. And you can choose to be thankful in these moments, in these spaces. You can choose these things. As the difficulties arise, as they're in circle, you can choose to be thankful. So what that looks is, husbands, maybe you need to look at your difficult marriages as God is through the lens that God is at work in you because he loves you to show you how you are to love your wives better. And moms, maybe, maybe, maybe you should need to look at, at your difficult relationship with your rebellious son or daughter as God is at work in you, showing you how he pursues your rebellious heart also. You can be thankful in those moments. I mean, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, thankfulness in all circumstances doesn't sound so crazy then, does it? Not when you look at it through the lens of Man, a good God is at work. My focus is on the God that's at work in that situation for me, in my life, changing me, growing me, molding me, building me up. I mean, you can actually walk into Thanksgiving Day thankful. And the scriptures are going to help us with that. So I'm going to ask everybody to turn to Psalm 100. Just a few books to the left. It's actually the middle of your Bible, Psalm 100. Uh, it's a really short psalm, only five verses, but I promise you, this is, this, if you take anything away, you take this with you, Psalm 100. I'm going to read it for you, these five verses. The psalmist writes this. In these verses is where you see rejoicing, prayer, and thankfulness all wrapped into one. The psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So I'm gonna give you a little homework today. You notice that in your bulletin you received on the way in, there's a little three-by-five note card. There's a little blank note card there. I want to encourage you, write down these five verses on that note card. Now, you don't have to do that now, but I would encourage you at some point today, write down those five verses on this note card and then spend the five minutes every day this week up to Thanksgiving and pray through those verses. Read those verses. Ask God to encourage you and teach you uh, to rejoice and give thanks in those verses. Use that to, to realign your focus. Use that so that your mind and your heart are refocused on the greater perspective, on God at work. You'll walk into Thanksgiving Day rejoicing. You'll walk in thankful. You know, put it up on your fridge, stick it on your dashboard, keep it in your pocket, whatever you want to do with that uh, three-by-five card. But read those verses every morning and refocus, realign it, that, that your vision and your eyes and your heart that God is at work. That's what the scriptures will do for us. And God has given us a picture of this. God has given us a lens through which we can look that modeled a life of, of, of rejoicing, a life of prayer, a life of thanks, that modeled it perfectly. God has given us Jesus. For we see this in his life, this Jesus who was born knowing that he was going to suffer who came to us from the throne of heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, living a perfect life to suffer and to die and to struggle for me and for you on our behalf. It is this Jesus who went to the cross with joy, and we know that because the scriptures say it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross 
and despise. I don't know about you, but all I see there is pain and suffering. I don't see any joy. But Jesus looks at the cross, and he sees joy because he knows that he's fulfilling the plan of his Father and standing in your place and in mine. He doesn't look at his circumstances. He looks at his Father. He's on the cross, and they're mocking him, and they're yelling at him to come down and save himself. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then he yields his spirit up to the Father. This is Jesus standing in our place. This is Jesus out of joy and sheer love for you that he stands for broken people and he absorbs our sin and our pain on the cross. And then three days later, as the scriptures beautifully declare, he raises from the dead in victory, in glory. It is this Jesus. And for some of us today, the only way we can rejoice is by recognizing that there's something greater at work in our life. The only way you'll be able to give thanks is knowing that there is a God in heaven who's at work in the circumstances and in the situation in your life. For some of us today, we need to turn our focus and turn our eyes to him. This morning, I will call all of you to do that. The scriptures would call all of you to turn your focus on the one who can give you that joy, on the one who is the object of your prayers, on the one who can help you choose to be thankful because he's at work. So we're going to pray together, and I'm going to ask you to pray. Now, now I want to remind you, this, this prayer is not going to save you. The confession of your mouth that Jesus is Lord and the belief, the genuine belief in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the scriptures say that will save you. So we can pray together. Close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And for some this morning, Father, I pray that they would lift up their voices to you and lift up their hearts. Lord, I need you. I need this joy. I need this thanks in my life. I come before you with all of my brokenness. I come before you with all of my pain. I come before you with my my trinkets and my meager success, and I bring it and leave it at your feet. I come boldly to your throne, and I ask you, Jesus, to save me. I ask you, Jesus, I turn my life over to you. I turn from my sin. I turn from my rebellion, and I embrace you, Jesus, by faith. And I ask you to save my heart, my soul. I thank you for your work on the cross, your sacrificial death, and your life-giving resurrection. I, I thank you for it. And I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.